Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Regardless of whether your Word is, is paperback like mine, or you've got it on a smartphone or a tablet or whatever, let me encourage you to open up God's Word. And if you don't have it, and you're a follower of Jesus, you're already a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you every single Sunday to bring a copy of God's Word. It doesn't matter that we have it on the screen. You need to open up God's Word and follow along and read it as we study God's Word. This morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 14. There's nothing I hate worse than being nauseous. Nothing. I've been knocked out. I've broken numerous bones. I've had four knee surgeries. And yet through all of that, I've discovered that I can endure pain pretty good. But I hate being nauseous. I would rather experience any amount of pain than to be nauseous. I hate throwing up. I hate feeling like I'm going to throw up. And I'm one of those sympathy vomiters, if you know what I mean. If I'm around it, I'm going to feel your pain, and I'm going to join in it with you. I hate it. Now, some of you are probably asking, why am I starting this morning talking about something that is so gross? Well, the reason is, as we wrap up this series this morning, we're going to be looking at a church that the Bible says literally made Jesus want to vomit. Your translation may say sick, your translation may say spew them out of his mouth, but the word literally means to vomit with extreme disgust. That's what the word means. This church literally made Jesus so sick that he was nauseous and he wanted to vomit. Now before we dive in and we look at this church, I felt like we, we needed to take a few moments to to just review where we've been. For the last nine weeks, we've been looking at Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And, and our primary focus has been on the seven churches that, that are located in Asia Minor, what is now known as Turkey. And, and each of these churches had, had unique strengths, and each of these churches had unique weaknesses. And, and Jesus gave a specific message to each one of these churches. To the church in Ephesus, he, he said that they were a hard-working church. But he had one thing against them. They had left their first love. They were no longer passionately in love with Jesus like, like they were at the very beginning. I, I remember how it was when, when I first gave my life to Christ. When, when I experienced that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness, and I knew that my sins had been washed away, and, and I had a home in heaven, and, and Jesus loved me unconditionally, and my love for him was, I've got to be honest, an overwhelming love. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, if, if you're a child of God, you know what it is to have that kind of love for him. You know what it is to have your sins forgiven and to experience that mercy. And yet the church at Ephesus had left that first love. They were no longer in love with Jesus that way. The church at Smyrna, this was a church that no negative thing was said about them. They remained strong in spite of persecution. As a matter of fact, Jesus warned them that a great persecution was coming against them. And yet in spite of this, in spite of losing their jobs and being arrested, being thrown into prison, and losing their lives, they remained committed to Jesus. The church at Pergamum had many good qualities, but they had begun compromising their beliefs. They were compromising the Word of God. And, and as they compromised the Word of God, it was causing them to compromise their lifestyle. They were beginning to do things that the Word of God clearly said was sin. And yet because they had compromised their beliefs, they were accepting these practices that, that were not in line with the Word of God. And so Jesus warned the church at Pergamum. And then the church at Thyatira was a church that, that Jesus said was strong in love, but they had become tolerant. And you say, what's wrong with being tolerant? Well, they were tolerating false beliefs and false lifestyles in their church. And, and Jesus said, if you continue this, it will destroy you. You see, we need to understand that there are things that we are tolerant of, of those people who do not know Jesus. But when people say that they are followers of Jesus, when people are a part of his body, they are a part of his bride, the church, they are expected, we are expected to live by a different standard. And yet here was this church that had begun to compromise, and that compromise had led them to tolerating false beliefs, false practices, which in turn was going to lead to their destruction. The church at Sardis, they had a good reputation, but they had no real life. I mean, they were the walking dead. They looked alive, but they weren't alive. And what was missing in that church was the Spirit of God. And you see, churches can go on for a long time going through the motions doing all the right things, and yet the Spirit of God is no longer present, no longer active, no longer powerful in that church. When we come to the church at Philadelphia, we discover a church that was taking advantage of the opportunities that God had given them. No bad thing was said about this church. It was a church that, that God placed an open door of opportunity before them. And remember, an open door is an opportunity for expanded ministry for the sake of the gospel. The Lord doesn't give us an opportunity to expand our ministry so that we can promote our name. He doesn't give us an opportunity for expanded ministry simply so that we can help people. Whenever God gives us an opportunity for expanded ministry, it is always for the sake of the gospel. For sharing the good news of the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. But then we come to the church at Laodicea. And this was a church that was located in a city that was very wealthy. Laodicea was filled with trade and, 
and commerce. They were a banking and, and, a, and a manufacturing mecca. They were a self-sufficient city. As a matter of fact, in A.D. 60, an earthquake leveled the city. And when all of the surrounding cities were getting help from Rome to help rebuild, the city of Laodicea refused help from Rome. They said, we can rebuild on our own. We don't need your help. And that self-sufficient attitude that had permeated the city had now found its way into the church. So I want you to read what what Jesus says to this church, beginning in verse 14. Follow along. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, vomit you out. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your knee or your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now with each of these letters... Jesus begins with a description of himself. And let me remind you that that as Jesus describes himself to each of these churches, he is doing it in a very specific way that applies to the message that he is giving to these churches. And to this church, Jesus says three things. First of all, he says, I am the final word. The Greek word amen, which is used here, means firm, trustworthy, sure, The Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament for amen means truth. It is a word that describes certainty, but it is also a word that describes finality. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. When I speak on an issue, that settles the matter. I am the absolute truth. I am the final word. What I say goes. There is no debate. There is no argument. There is no discussion. And yet all too often Jesus will say something very clearly to us in his word and we will say but 
Times have changed. But you don't know my situation. But, and we fill in the blanks. And yet, what we need to understand is when Jesus speaks on an issue, it is a settled matter. He is the final word. Next, he is the faithful witness. Jesus is faithful and true, and he is the faithful and true witness about everything. What he says is always true. What he says can always be counted on. Where he gives a word of testimony, we know that it is the final true word. And then he says, he is the source of all creation. Now, if you have an NIV translation of the Bible, you know the word there is translated ruler. That is the word that we have on our screen. But the word here is not the word that is often used for ruler, kurios, or, or Lord, it's the word arche, which means beginning or source. What this is saying is Jesus is the source of all creation. In other words, listen, everything originates with Jesus. Everything finds its beginning in Jesus. Jesus is the author and the completer the creator of everything. And because of that, everything belongs to Jesus. If Jesus made it, if he formed it, if he fashioned it, if he is the source behind it, then it belongs to him. And so you and I need to understand that we are not our own. We were created by Jesus and then through his blood, he bought us a second time. We were bought with a price. You are not your own. And you need to understand that. You see, Jesus is not here to meet our needs. And that's what so many people believe in the church today. Well, praise God, Jesus is here to meet my every need. Listen, Jesus isn't here to meet your needs. We are here to serve Jesus, to bring honor to Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him. We're not in the center of the universe. Jesus is. He is the source of all. Now, why is this important? Why is it important for us to realize that he is the final word? He is the faithful and true witness, and he is the source of everything. Here's why. Because what Jesus is about to say to this church is so hard to believe that he has to establish, I have the authority to say what I'm about to say. And the reason I have the authority, because you found your beginning in me, and what I say goes. And so next, we see Jesus describes the church. And as you read this, you see that Jesus gives no praise to this church. He gives no affirmation to this church. He simply says, I know your works. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. Now, what was Jesus saying? Some people misinterpret this verse. They say what Jesus was saying is, I, I, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. I'd rather you be, be cold 
than, than not be hot for me. But why would Jesus say to us, he wants us to be spiritually cold? Jesus would never say, I want you to be spiritually cold. That's not what he's saying. You see, Jesus is using a picture that they could understand to describe their condition. Laodicea, the city, had a water problem. They did not have enough water to supply the needs of all the people that lived in the city. But there were two cities that were close to Laodicea that had water. Hyopolis had hot springs that people would go to for healing. They would get in those hot springs and and the chemicals and and the hot water would soothe their achy joints and, and it was therapeutic and they would feel better. And the city of Colossa had cold springs. Have any of you ever been to an artesian well where, where that water is coming from a, from a well deep down in the water and that water or deep down in the earth and that water is coming up and it is so fresh and it is so cold and man, you drink that water and it is just refreshing. Well, Colossa had the cold springs. And so what the city of Laodicea did is they built aqueducts. They built aqueducts from Hyopolis to, to pump in the, the hot water. And they built aqueducts from Colossa to pump in the cold water. But the problem was, by the time the hot water got from Hyopolis to, to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. It had cooled off. And, and now it was the temperature of the environment around it. And the cold spring water that was coming from Colossa, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was tepid. It was was like tap water. It it wasn't cold. And, And Jesus was saying, you're just like the water that you pump in. You're not hot, therapeutic, bringing healing to those who are hurting. You're not cool and refreshing Meeting the needs of those who were in pain. You are lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I I, I feel like vomiting you out of my mouth. Listen, what Jesus is saying here is that there is nothing. I want you to hear me. There is nothing more disgusting. There is nothing more dangerous than the lukewarm church. Not the church that has left their first love. Not the dead church. Not the compromising church. Not even the tolerant church. The most disgusting and the most dangerous church of all is the lukewarm church. Now what are the characteristics of a lukewarm church? Let me give you three. First of all, a lukewarm church is indifferent. They don't deny the gospel. They believe the gospel. They would say that you're lost without Jesus. They would say that Jesus saves. They would say that Jesus is God. And they would say, I want to go to heaven when I die. But then they would say, but leave me alone right now. That's the lukewarm person. That's the lukewarm church. Yes, we believe in you. Yes, we know about you. Yes, we want to go to heaven, but, but right here, right now, leave us alone. 
You see, the lukewarm church knows the facts about Jesus and they believe it. He just hasn't made a difference in their life. They're going through the motions. The Christian life has become routine. It's something that they can do in their sleep. You see, they had enough of the gospel to get them to church sometime. But they didn't have enough of the gospel to radically change their lives. They were lukewarm. And so that inevitably leads us to ask, were they saved or were they lost? We don't know. There were probably some of them that had truly been saved. There were probably many of them who had never, ever actually been saved. We don't know. And it's not our responsibility to determine whether someone is saved or not. That's God's responsibility. But what we do know is these people were living such a life that it spoke to the world that Jesus did not make a difference in their life. They were indifferent toward the things of God. Second, they were arrogant. This church thought it had everything it needed. They were wealthy. They were self-sufficient. And to be honest... They didn't think they needed God. They said, God, you go help somebody else. We can handle this on our own. You see, all too often our successes and our blessings don't cause us to fall on our face and praise God and ask for more. It causes us to stand up tall and say, look at us. But understand, apart from God, we can do nothing as individuals or as a church. We can build great buildings, we can offer great programs, we can put on a nice show, but apart from him, we are nothing. My wife and I went out to eat last night for our 33rd anniversary. And um, as we were sitting around waiting for our food to come, we were talking about, um, one, what are some of your favorite memories from 33 years and we talked about personal things and and then we said okay what are some of the things that really speak to you in 33 years of ministry together because because she's walked with me throughout all the time that I pastored churches and and both of us remembered a church in the upstate of South Carolina it was a mill village poor church in the middle of I mean just a run down dilapidated area And it was a difficult church. I mean, the the pastor before I went there had a nervous breakdown. Had to resign. Two pastors before him had killed himself. It wasn't the kind of church that most people say, hey, this is a real healthy church. Go there. (laughs) But, But we knew God called us there. And we went there and just started proclaiming the gospel. And and not because of anything that we did. Because really, you know, we had to say, we don't, we don't know, but God showed up. I mean, God showed up in a way unlike anything I've ever seen before. And we've seen more people saved at Northside than we saw saved there in that little village, village church. But I got to tell you, God hadn't shown up here like God showed up there. I mean, God showed up in such a way that, that we had services where where people were at the altar crying before God for two hours. I mean, you get through with all the singing, you give an invitation, and 
And people were just at the altar for two hours pouring out their heart to God. We saw people delivered from Satanism and drug addictions and just all kind of things miraculously, instantaneously, supernaturally delivered. And it was just God. We had nothing. We were a poor church, poor facilities in the middle of nowhere. And yet God showed up because we didn't have anything else. And what happens is we we get nice facilities. We have money in the bank. We have a good staff. We have all of these things. And we don't say it. But we begin to think, God, you go help somebody else. We can handle this. The arrogance. They were indifferent. They were arrogant. And they were ignorant. They were self-deceived. They said, we're rich. Jesus said, you're poor. They said, we see. Jesus said, you're blind. They said, we're clothed in beauty. Jesus said, you're naked. They were like the emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's story. The, the emperor that thought he was clothed in splendor and yet he was walking around without clothes. Remember that story? That's how they were. They thought everything was okay, but it wasn't. That's the lukewarm church. They're indifferent to the things of God. They know the things of God. They believe the things of God, but if... God doesn't show up, that's okay. They were arrogant. We're doing pretty good here. And they were ignorant. So what is so repugnant about being a lukewarm church? Let me give you three things. First of all, it devalues our love for God. When we're lukewarm, it devalues our love. Someone said it this way. They said lukewarmness is a yawn in the face of God. Wow. Standing face to face with God Almighty. And you yawn. <sighs> no big deal. It devalues our love for God. We, we come to believe that, that it's what we believe that is really important. And it's not what we believe. It's what he's done in us and through us. So devalues our love for God. It destroys our influence in the world. The, the world looks at us and they go... If, If your love for Jesus, if your commitment to Jesus doesn't make any more difference in your life than that, I don't want it. I don't need it. And then it ultimately condemns people to hell. People look at us with our watered-down faith, and either they reject it because they see that it doesn't change lives, it doesn't help their marriages, it doesn't heal their bitterness it it doesn't set them free and they reject it or worse than that they accept it and think it saves them and they're never saved you see the gospel that the lukewarm church preaches and proclaims the gospel that proclaims the facts and yet is void of the power that, that gospel doesn't save. 
And that's where we need to understand that, that just because a person walks down an aisle, just because a person is baptized in water, just because a person begins to go to a life group or, or whatever else, it doesn't mean they've ever been transformed, they've ever been born again, they've ever been made new. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel, the gospel is transforming. So the lukewarm church ultimately condemns people to hell. Now, how can we know if we're lukewarm? What are some of the symptoms, some of the signs of, of lukewarmness in us? Let me, let me give you four or five quickly. First of all, we treat corporate gathering like it's unimportant. We're hit and miss with our church attendance. You know, we live in a day and age where a lot of people say, well, you don't have to go to church to know Jesus. No. But if you know Jesus, you're going to be in church. Amen or oh my. Can I tell you the proof text? Hebrews 10, 25, this command, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some are doing because you know the day is quickly approaching. Instead, come together and encourage one another. And so if you're here and, and you say you're a child of God and yet you don't feel compelled to be in church weekly with your spiritual family, worshiping, opening up the Word of God, studying, praying, celebrating, then you're becoming lukewarm. Second, lukewarm people no longer have a hunger to read and apply God's Word. The Bible says, study to show yourself approved in God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. If you don't have a desire to daily get into the word, you are becoming lukewarm. And some of you are saying, but, you know, I, I read open windows every day. I, I, I read this devotional thought online you're typically reading one verse and then reading someone's thoughts on a verse. May I tell you, you don't need to hear what someone thinks about God's Word. You need to hear God's Word and let God's Spirit speak to you because God's Word is truth. So do you have a hunger for God's Word? Third, our prayer life is either self-centered or non-existent, self-centered. Almost all of our prayers seem to focus on God. Will you do this for me and mine? When there is a world that is lost that has never heard the gospel of Jesus, and we don't spend time on our face begging that those people can hear the gospel, begging that laborers will be sent forth into the harvest. So our prayer life is either self-centered or it's non-existent. We find ourselves praying when we're in desperate need. Third, we don't give or we give a token gift when we give our offering. I want you to listen to me. God's Word is clear. In the Old Testament, God's Word is clear in the New Testament. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. You say, this is mine to do with as I please. No, it's not. Everything belongs to God. 
and you are a steward. And God's word clearly teaches under the law that the tithe is the starting point of good stewardship. A tithe is giving 10% of everything that I make back to God for his glory and his use. But that's under the law. Under grace, we are compelled to do far more than the law could ever coerce us to do. And so some people say, well, we're not under the law. You're exactly right. You're under grace. And, and the love of God should compel you to do more than the law of God could ever force you to do. And, and so if you don't have a desire to give and give generously and give biblically and give obediently, then I'm here to tell you, you are lukewarm. And then serving, you don't serve. You come and you sit and you soak. And to be honest, some of you sour. And that's what happens when you soak it in and you're not having some way to get it out. You sour. We're a body and as a body we all need one another and and if you're a part of this body, then there is a place that you need to serve. And it could be in our preschool or children or student ministry. It could be with upward sports. It could be in our life groups. It could be out in the parking lot. There are a variety of ways you can serve, but you need to serve. And, and then finally, sharing our faith. Look at me. It's the height of hypocrisy. To say you believe the gospel saves. And then not be compelled to share the gospel with people that need to hear it. Would you agree with me? To, to say that I believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And then to keep my mouth shut about that. Doesn't make sense. And we're lukewarm. How do we know we're lukewarm? Well, there's some ways. And then finally, Jesus counseled to the church. Let me give these to you quick. First of all, Jesus said, open your eyes to your spiritual need. He said, get ointment from me for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. Laodicea was a medical center that, that was famous for the salve that they made that people could put on their eyes to treat, to treat people's eyes. And, and Jesus said, it's not that that you need, it's the salve that comes from me that you need that you can put on your eyes and you'll be able to see spiritually your need. Some of us are so blind that we don't even see our need. Second, Jesus said you need to recognize that your value comes from whose you are and not what you have. Jesus said you need to get gold that comes from me. We, we don't have anything to bring to Jesus that will impress him. The only thing that we can do is come to him and receive. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we have. It's about whose we are. And then third, we need to take off the shameful deeds of the past and put on the righteousness of, of Christ. Now notice what Jesus says here. If your Bibles are still open. He says that these things need to be bought. Now, that almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? 
I mean, salvation is supposed to be free, right? So why is he saying, I, I, I need to buy from him gold, and I need to buy from him salve, and, and I need to buy from him clothes? Why is that? Well, well, the answer is found in Isaiah. Isaiah said this. Listen to what it says. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Now that sounds like a contradiction, right? Come to the water, everyone who is thirsty, who has no money, come and buy. And we're sitting back saying, how can we buy if we have no money? And the reason is, Jesus has already placed the money in our account. Jesus has provided for us by what he did on the cross, the payment that we need for the things that we need in our life. Jesus has paid the price. And then Jesus gives a rebuke. He tells us that that he will rebuke and he will discipline those he loves. And may I say to you, listen, if you're a child of God and there's sin in your life and you're not living under the disciplining hand of God right now, it's evidence that you don't know him. You say, that's harsh. No, the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Christians can fall into sin, but let me tell you, when a Christian falls into sin, the Lord is not going to turn his eye off of it. He is going to discipline us. He is going to do everything he can to bring us back to him. And Jesus said, be earnest and repent. We know what repent means. We've talked about that. But the word earnest, it means to be on fire, to reach the boiling point. Jesus is saying to the church, you need to quit playing games you need to get serious with your commitment and and then Jesus gives them an invitation and what's interesting is Jesus is on the outside of this church and he's knocking on the door saying if you will open the door I will come in and eat with you and you with me I want you to notice this this is important Jesus comes right up to the door of the church. He comes right up to the door of our heart and he knocks. He doesn't break down the door. He stops at the door. He never violates our freedom. He knocks. He says, let me in. But we can refuse. We can reject. And then he says this. If you open the door... Let me in. I will eat with you and you will eat with me. And and this is a picture of intimate friends who are breaking bread together. And then he says this. To those who overcome, you will sit with me on my throne. Now, I don't know what that brings to your mind. May I tell you what it brings to my mind? It brings to my mind me sitting in my recliner. And on Friday, we had our two grandchildren from Nashville. And because John and Christy are having a student event at the West Campus, we had our two grandkids from Lexington. 
And we had four. And it was a house full. And I'm tired. But I was sitting in the chair. And Gracie came and jumped into my lap. And Noah came and jumped into my lap. And as he came and jumped into my lap. And Asher, she was too small. But here were these three. They were jumping in Poppy's lap with Poppy's arms around them, sitting with Poppy in his chair. That's what I picture here. Picture sitting in the lap of Jesus with his arms wrapped around us, saying, come here. Let me love on you. Let me care for you. You're mine. But he doesn't force himself. He knocks. And he says, open the door. And I will come in. And here's what I know. There are some of you here right now. (laughs) Individually. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's where you're at spiritually. Jesus is not living inside of you. He's outside of you. You know it. You know you're not filled with his spirit. You know that he's not controlling you and guiding you and directing you. And what you need to do is you just need to humble yourself before him. And you need to turn your life over him today. Quit running. Quit rebelling. And give your life to the one who loves you. But as a church, we need to make sure that we never become lukewarm, that we never become indifferent, that we never become self-sufficient, that we never become ignorant of the fact that apart from Jesus, we're nothing. That it's all Jesus or it's nothing. So I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes and with your head bowed and with your eyes closed. First of all, I want to talk to you who individually may need to give your heart and life to Jesus right now. And if that's where you're at and you know that, then I want to encourage you to right here, right now, and in this moment, to humble yourself and pray this prayer with a sincere heart to him. Dear God, I need you. I've been living my way. I've been in rebellion. I've been playing God. Forgive me. I don't want to live that way anymore. Forgive me. Take control of my life. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. I believe you will fill me with your spirit. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Come into my life. Save me. I'm trusting you. I'm yours. Take control. From this moment on, I want to live for you, Jesus. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen.